We'll now enter into uh, the worship of our God through the preaching of the word. I'll read the text to us. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The text for today is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read verses 28 through 33 together. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 28, Paul says this, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's, uh, let's, pr let's pray one more time together, and uh, we will begin this glorious section of Scripture. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Lord, again, we look to your word now, and we simply pray, God, that you would open up our eyes to see wonderful things from your law today. I pray you encourage every heart. I pray that every mind would be opened to your truth. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and may the eyes of our hearts see your glory in the text. And I pray, God, that you would show us through the great sacrifice of the Apostle Paul just how much he did for your church. And Father, I pray that you would give us a healthy view of the local church just like Paul had. I pray that you'd open our eyes to these things and that you would change us and transform us and cause our mind to be renewed away from the world and what they think about the church and renew our thinking and get us in step with how you see the church and what you think of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, we are looking at the Final portion here, chapter 11. Somebody just asked me, you're still in chapter 11? Yes, sorry, still in chapter 11. But it is such a glorious text. And what we're looking at really is how the power of God was at work in the Apostle Paul as he served the church in his human weakness. And I love that about the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't give us these models of Christian living that are so far out there that we can't relate to them. The Apostle Paul was just like you and I. James says Elijah was a man of like nature, just like you and I. These are tangible examples that we can hold on to, that we can learn from. And uh, I want to begin today as we think about Paul's sacrifice for the church. I want to begin by thinking about what is the church? Where did the concept of church come from? And certain people, when you mention the word church, in their mind immediately comes the idea of institutional religion. I've had so many people tell me, I'm not into organized religion. 
I don't like to go where they ask you for money and, you know, where the preacher's yelling at you and people are doing weird religious things while they sing. But the church is certainly more than that. The church is the climax of everything that God has done on planet earth. And I think sometimes we miss that. And so I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Keep your finger there. Because Paul is not sacrificing for a, a moral club. Paul is not sacrificing for a group of good old boys who like to get together and talk about old religious things. Paul is laying down his life for an entity that God calls his church, his ecclesia. The Greek word ecclesia simply means assembly, a gathering. A gathering of what? And a gathering for what? Why did he gather us? In uh, the book that I wrote, Convert, I have a whole chapter on the local church. Why did God gather us? Why didn't he just save us and just leave us in isolation? Why didn't he just save us, put a Bible in our hand, and we can all go in our own little corner and figure things out? Why does he gather us together like this? He gathers us together like this, brothers and sisters, because this is the greatest expression of the redemptive work of God on planet Earth. It wasn't during the patriarchal period. It wasn't in the mighty succession and the mighty generations of the patriarchs, as great as that was. It wasn't in the great tribes of Israel, as great as they were militarily, politically, theocratically. As great in number as they were, as great as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant was to Abraham himself, when God says, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea, like the stars in the sky, you won't be able to number them, there's going to be so many. That wasn't the completion. That wasn't the fulfillment. Neither was it during the dynasties of the various kingdoms under Solomon, under David, under all the kings of Israel. That was not the climax. Neither was it under any of the exiles after captivity after captivity, and God's people were coming back in remnant form. That small little remnant, those little fragments of God's people that kept coming back. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, as glorious as that is, that is not the climax. The climax is God's newly constituted people. The climax is when Jesus uttered the words in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. It is the assembly of the Messiah that makes all the difference in the world. They are his newly, his newly constituted Israel. They are his true Israel, his true Jews, his true chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, his new kingdom of priests. In the old kingdom, you had one priest, right? Or various priests and a high priest. In the kingdom of Christ, you are a priest recently told a Catholic 
as I was sharing the gospel with him, you know, the next time you go to confession, see if the priest will allow you, see if the priest will confess his sins to you. Because according to the New Testament, you are a priest unto your God. And there are no priests higher than other priests. We are all, it's called the priesthood of all believers. This is what God has done in the church. And it is a climax. We are standing on the pinnacle of what God has done. We are not awaiting anything else to happen. There is not a new group coming. There is not a future revival that we're waiting for that will be so much greater that, that our age will be inferior to that. No! Paul says, and the author of Hebrews says, we are the ones upon whom the end of the ages has come. What does that mean? It means God did everything He needed to do in order to usher in the end of the age. There's nothing left. And then, in the end, when we see this great and glorious return of Jesus Christ, it will be the crescendo to the symphony that the church's orchestras have been playing for 2,000 or 3,000. I don't know when he's coming back. But it will simply be the grand crescendo to the symphony that God is playing right now on planet Earth through his church. You feel special? Even more special, though, is Jesus Christ. It's His church. It's His work. He has done it. This is what Isaiah was talking about, the wonderful things that God was going to do that if He told us our ears would start to tingle, we wouldn't believe it. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people on planet Earth are coming out of the woodwork. God is choosing and saving and redeeming and taking out people from Papua New Guinea. China, Chile, Afghanistan, Samoa, Thailand, Philippines, you name it. Ephesians chapter 3. Now that I've primed the pump, I will let Paul explain what I'm talking about. He says in verse 8, and this is how every pastor should feel. If he doesn't feel like this, he doesn't know what he has in his hands. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, he explains that, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light, that means to explain, what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. There was a mystery, a little secret, a big secret, that only God had. He kept it in the bosom of his heart. He kept it in his own little secret place to reveal it at the proper time. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Isn't that amazing? To the rulers, people in power, presidents, kings, prime ministers, authorities, look at authorities, and then not just earthly, but also cosmic authorities in the heavenly places, angels, 
demons, Satan, they will all know the glory of God in the church. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the plan. You sitting right here today, if you are a believer, especially if you're a member of our church, you are in heritage grace, and it has been the part of God's eternal plan. Isn't that amazing? Now, now, maybe we can begin to approximate why Paul is so concerned for the church, why he is so jealous for the church, like he says. Why he loves the church so much. Why he's willing to die for the church, to lay down his life for the church. Why, as a steward of Christ, he says, I have become a servant of all, a doulos of all, a slave of everyone for Christ's sake. And so, it is on the basis of that understanding that Paul begins to express his internal worries and his internal struggles and his internal suffering on behalf of the church. Look at the first aspect of this. Number one, Paul's intense concern for the peace and the purity of the church. Verse 28, he says, apart from all these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Isn't that amazing? So you say, look, apart from, and some exegetes have even concluded, maybe even more intense than the external things. It's one thing to have your body beaten. It's another thing to go through internal psychological and physiological turmoil inside this existential battle in the mind and in the heart of the Apostle Paul, this, this angst, this anxiety. Many of you know what it feels to have an anxiety attack, right? I've had people tell me I had to go to the hospital. I had to get the ambulance. To go. I thought I was having a heart attack. That's how bad my anxiety attack got. Well, Paul was filled with great anxiety over the, the peace and the purity of the church. And look at this. Look at the scope of this concern. He was concerned for all the churches. All the churches. See, God had entrusted Paul to be a pastor of many churches. In the book of Acts, when the apostles go around in the various regions, especially during Paul's second missionary second missionary journey, sorry. He had to go and establish pastors in these, in these cities that he had already started up congregations. Until those pastors were in place, Paul was their pastor. Paul was a pastor of many churches. You know, a lot of missionaries operate in that same way right now, right now. Our own dear brother, Joseph Urban, right now is essentially pastoring as a past, functioning as a pastor of two churches. Every Saturday, he drives seven hours to Mexico City from Guadalajara. He drives from Guadalajara to Mexico City for seven hours on a bus to preach to another group of people that want the word. And then Saturday night, he drives back and he wakes up Sunday morning and preaches in his church. So I have nothing to complain about compared to that brother. But you see, Paul's love for the church 
you see that Paul would wonder, how is the state of, the, of, the, of all of these churches, all the churches, he says, how are the Galatians doing against the Judaizers? How are the Colossians dealing with the problem of, the problem of asceticism and legalism in the church? How are the Romans dealing with the Jew and Gentile controversy that exists there in Rome? How are the Thessalonians bearing up under persecution? These are the types of things that would have filled Paul's heart and his mind, his concern, his concern. But he loves the flock. If you would, you can see in Acts chapter 20, probably the best place of all, where Paul Paul bears his heart, where Paul shows us what kind of shepherd he really was. Acts 20, verse 28, he says to the Ephesian elders there, as he's getting ready to leave, he leaves them with this solemn warning. He says, be on your guard for you, uh, for yourselves, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And there, a reference to Jesus being God. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And he says, therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day... For a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's amazing to me. Paul knew that the church is a volatile thing. It is a a sensitive organism. There are attacks from without and there are attacks that rise up from within. And if we look at the church right now, even the greater evangelical church, we can certainly attest to that. There are the classic external problems of the church. There is Islam. There are the pseudo-Christian cults, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Christian scientists. They are all these people that are trying to use Christ to begin their own religion, their own cult, their own movement. And then you have both, so you have both external and internal problems. But maybe even more concerning to Paul after that is the purity of the church itself. Look at, the, look at verse 29 again. He says, not only that, he says, but who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And so two things are expressed here. There is Weakness and sin, or we can say suffering and sin. That's what he's concerned about. How are people doing? How are the sick people in the congregation? We should care. The pastor is to be concerned. The pastor is to be praying. You to be over there ministering. You to be contacting that person. You to be concerned about that person, bringing them what they need, offering up mercy ministry in the church in that way. Paul gives us an example of this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, he shows us that he cares about Epaphras, his fellow servant, his fellow worker in the Lord, because Epaphras was sick. And let me just kind of read this to us. It gives us kind of a bird's eye view, a little snap, you know, a little little picture into what was going on. He says in Philippians 2.25, he says, but I thought it was necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, 
who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. I think I said Epaphras, Epaphroditus. He says, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. That's how much he loved Epaphroditus. For Epaphroditus to die on the mission field would have been a taxing, taxing thing for Paul. It would have broke Paul's heart. And so there he is, extremely concerned for the sick. The other, the other side of the coin, though, is not only the physical suffering, but more than that, the spiritual sin, the spiritual weakness, we can say, as people are led into sin. That was another major concern for the Apostle Paul. That's why Paul encourages, look, notice the word he uses here, to be led to sin. Scandalizo, it's just a word that means to stumble. In other words, it's who is being caused to stumble into sin. And a lot of times, a scandalizo is used in the context of causing a person to apostatize, to leave the Christian faith, to be undermined in their, the, very, the very basic foundation of their beliefs. Possibly this came in through heresy. But here, generally, the word sin can be, can be brought about by all sorts of different things. Obviously, the personal purity of a person, the personal holiness of an individual was concerning to Paul. And that's why Paul tells the believers, look, don't stumble one another. Don't stumble one another either with, with issues dealing with Christian liberty. Don't stumble one another with the way that you speak. None of those things should be an option. We should be very cognizant of the fact that we dare not stumble one another. Oh, the weakness that we have, brothers and sisters. We are so susceptible. Just as susceptible as you are to physical illness, that is how susceptible you are to spiritual sin, to spiritual sin. And that's why Paul would say, look, do your best to encourage, constantly be encouraging one another, exhorting one another. And being careful that you do not ever, ever, ever lead anyone into to stumbling into sin. Don't provoke one another, Scripture says. Watch the way that you use your tongue with one another. Don't present a stumbling block before one another. You know, Paul's words here, intense concern. That is only one way to translate this Greek phrase. The more literal translation would be literally he says, who is led into sin without me burning with fire? <laughs> That's a one literal rendition, one lexical definition of the term. Who is, he, says, he says, who is led into sin and I am not set ablaze? That's another translation. And that's why most exegetes have concluded that when sin overtook a brother, overtook a sister in the church, Paul was filled with righteous indignation. Anger over the issue, angry at sin, hatred for sin. The psalmist says, to hate evil is to love God. That is the love of God. That is to fear God. It's to hate evil. John MacArthur says, love is not the enemy of moral indignation. It is its partner. 
Holy indignation towards those who lead believers into sin is an expression of the purest kind of love. You don't hear this very much anymore in modern evangelical political correctness type churches. But you pick up a book that was written 400 years ago. <laughs> you pick up Francis Chiriton's, uh his, his systematic theology called the Atlantic, uh, uh, what, what's it called? Atlantic Theology. You pick up those three volumes. You open it up, and he's writing to kings. He's writing to the, he's, to the magistrates, and he's telling them of all the evils, of all the heretics in the land, and he's calling them things like monsters of iniquity, in, unhuman, <laughs> because they're spreading damnable sin. There's nothing worse than being the cause of a person rejecting the truth of the gospel. It is one thing to trip them up temporarily in some sin, but it's another thing to cut them off from the way of everlasting life. It's, it's another thing to pose a threat to their eternal destiny. That's why Jesus says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea. You won't hear that verse on Fox News. You won't hear that verse almost anywhere today. But that's the way that Jesus viewed being the stumbling block, being the occasion of sin for another person. And it brought Paul great indignation. It upset him. Whether sin or suffering, whether a person needed encouragement or rebuke, correction or kindness, Paul taught that the spiritual sanctification of believers worked organically. Stay with me here. No one stood alone. No one stood apart from the body. No one was independent of the church. Paul's body metaphor in 1 Corinthians makes it clear that we cannot exist apart from one another. Christians ought to be humble enough to say, I need you, brother, sister. You know, if I was one of those preachers that tell you, hey, look at the person next to you and say, I need you, I would tell you that, but I'm not going to do that to you. But you get the point. We need one. We really, really need one another. And if the thought has crept into your mind, I don't need the fellowship of the brethren. I'm okay. I don't need to be around other believers all the time. Yeah, you know, my fellowship time's over there. And then when I hang out with my unbelieving friends, you know, that's, that's a whole different matter. No, brothers, we can never exist apart from fellowship. To detach yourself from a body would be like cutting off one of your limbs and expecting it to live. It will shrivel up and die. I remember walking through uh, Yellowstone, not Yellowstone Park, uh, Yosemite, uh, walking through the redwoods. Seen the pictures of the redwoods? You seen them in person? Some of you? Okay. And we were walking down this huge, I don't know, field full of redwood trees. And as you're walking there, you're, you're walking next to branches that are this tall. Branches. Not the tree, the branch. Okay? But as big as that branch was, because it was not connected to the trunk, it died. It petrified. It doesn't matter how much fruit you have. 
It doesn't matter how many years you've been walking with the Lord. It does not matter how old you are in the things of God. It does not matter how astute theologically you may think that you are. The second that you cut yourself off from the body, you will begin a dying process. You will begin to shrivel up and die. You see, because you are missing a critical stimulant. That the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, stimulate one another for love and good works. Who stimulates, you, who stimulates you to love and works? The assembly. Hebrews chapter 10. Do not forsake hanging out with a brother or sister at Starbucks. Well, that's one expression of it. Do not forsake birthday parties with you know, Christian folk. No, do not forsake the assembly. Do not forsake assembling your guys, yourselves together with the church. I'm trying to grope here for the right language, okay? I have met people that have been looking for a church for four years and can't find a church? You have got to be kidding me. You know what the problem is? They have become so critical and so embittered by whatever doctrine or whatever emphasis. They say, oh, I'm looking for a family-integrated church. Oh, I want to go to a tongue-speaking church. Oh, I want to go where there's good music. Oh, I want to go where the, the pastor's a good-looking, smart, intelligent, celebrity type of guy. You know you don't belong here if you're looking for that. But regardless of what you're looking for, the doctrine of ecclesiology in the New Testament would teach you are not too unique, you are not too different, you are not too particular, you are not too intelligent, you are not too theologically robust or sound or reformed or anything else that would lead you to conclude you have the right to isolate yourself from the church. You are in error. And unfortunately, so many people today have just not gotten that 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one of the members suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members should rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. That's important. So what he's trying to teach here, I believe, is that as inextricable as the believer is from Christ, so too is the connection that you have with other believers indissoluble. You cannot be separate from your brothers. It's like a family. It's like a family, you know? It'd be like one member of the family insisting that he live, you know, outside in the treehouse or something. What? Come in the house. Or are you ashamed of the house? Are you too good for the family? Maybe you don't like the cooking. Okay, sometimes that's true. But, <laughs> but there's no good reason for us to separate ourselves from the church, brothers. And this is why we believe so strongly in church membership. Church membership, hey, let's be clear. Church membership will, a lot of times, will show where you're at. <laughs> you're playing around. You're just kind of visiting for a little bit, dipping in, dipping out. Boom, you can be gone, and we won't know where you went or what happened to you. You join the church, all of a sudden, there's an accountability that has been heightened. And trust me, it is so sanctifying for your your relationship to God. Only the people, only immature people do not want church membership because they don't want accountability, 
either with the leadership or with one another. I mean, I remember I had this position. I was against the concept of church membership until I started studying the Word over and over and just going text after text after text and finally concluding the early church had church membership. There's no question about it. And come, out, come up and see me afterwards if you need me to walk you through that. But um, Then the next thing is not only this. Not only is his deep concern for the peace and purity of the church, but also we can see his concern because of the, the, the radical risk taking that Paul would do for the church. Look at verse 30. He says, if I have to boast, I will boast on what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of the Democenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Isn't that remarkable? It's like Indiana Jones moment, right? Here's Paul being led down a wall in a basket through a window. You know, someone's like, who were those guys? This is the type of radical risk-taking that Paul would do. And notice how he qualifies this. He makes this qualify. He reminds us, look, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm not going to boast in the numbers of the church. I'm not going to boast in the financial dealings of the church, how much money we've raised for this or that. I'm not going to boast about how many converts I have. I'm not going to boast about my apologetical methodology or my apologetical skills or my theological minutia or any of that. If I'm going to boast, this is how I'm going to boast. I'm going to show you how much I've had to suffer in my service to Christ what about these false teachers? We can't lose sight of the context. What about these false teachers in Corinth? What have they paid for following Christ? According to Galatians chapter 6, it's very clear. False teachers, especially Judaizers, which are probably somewhat of the same identity here in Corinth, they were unwilling to suffer persecution. And so they compromised. They didn't want to suffer at the hands of the Jews. And so they would have their converts circumcised and take upon Jewish religious celebrations and days and celebrating feasts and moon moons and sabbaths and all of that in order not to be persecuted for Christ. And so Paul says, look, I will boast to what pertains to my weakness. Not only does Paul qualify that this is the way he's going to boast, but he also qualifies the fact that his boasting is transparent before the Lord. This is the second time that he has brought an oath in, if you would, as he's getting ready to tell a story, he prefaces it by saying, I am telling the truth, and he summons God himself as his witness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, he knows that I am not lying. That's amazing. What an amazing reality. And in this way, Paul is distinguished from the false teachers. 1 Thessalonians, First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What a scathing expose on false teachers. People that propagate false doctrine, according to Paul, fall into this category. <laughs> it's amazing. 1 Timothy 4, 1. The Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means, that means instruments, agents, by means of the hypocrisy of liars 
who are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I can honestly tell you, I don't know if I've ever talked to somebody who's seared like this, but I think so. I've debated Muslims in their mosques. I've gone to the, to the Mormon wards. I have visited the kingdom halls and the elders of the, of the Jehovah Witness cult. And I can tell you, some of these men, they're just so seared. No matter how many arguments, I've had them tell me, I know that that's what the Greek says, I will not change. I will never leave this cult, whatever. <laughs> I just sit there and go, what? Am I hearing this? They're seared. They have believed their own lies. They are, so, they are under what Romans would say, self-deception. They've believed their own lies long enough that they don't know how to get out of it anymore. And no amount of exegesis, and no amount of apologetical methodology, and no, apart, no amount of argumentation is going to get them out. How can you not be a Calvinist if you see things like that? Secondly, it's also joined with a doxology. You see this, this oath? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, forever, knows that I am not lying. So, Paul, he wants his readers to understand in this oath that he is making, that he is making an oath to the God whom he worships, the one that is blessed forever. Beautiful. Eter we could say eternally blessed I love that language. And of, he says, not only that, but he wants him to know that he also has a proper view of God. That it's not just God, it's not just God the Father, but it is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. We can spend all day just unpacking that. The Trinitarian and Binitarian connections that are there. Just amazing. Paul's theology, perfect theology every time. Well, I guess if you're inspired by God, you probably will have to write perfect theology. But you know what I mean. Just a stroke of genius and everything that he does. And he also appeals to the omniscience of God. God knows that I am not lying. He knows the motive. He knows the heart. And that's why Romans says one day God is going to judge the intents of the hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where everything will be laid bare before him. He judges his motives, he judges his ministry, and he judges his mouth. Whether he means what he says. It should not be a surprise to us that Paul is repeating this thing because for Paul, you remember that he is dominated, he is obsessed by the reality that one day he, he's going to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for his whole life just like you will. Just like I will. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear. You, are, you have an appearance to make. you got an appointment. You're going to be there. You're going to show up. Right? I mean, if, if our own legal system could say, hey, look, you show up to to court on this day, or you get a warrant. You don't want a warrant, so you go show up, <laughs> right? Just that notice is enough of a fear to grip you, to move you, to appear. 
Well, guess what? God doesn't need a warrant. He doesn't need people to go hunt you down. He will summon you himself. And we will all appear before what? The judgment seat of Christ. Christ will be presiding over the hearts of all people. Everyone in Hollywood, every model, every actor, every producer, every politician, every president, everyone will have to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. Each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body, whatever he has done, whether good or evil. That's amazing. That is not, by the way, teaching salvation by works. It's saying that on the day of judgment, your lifestyle will bear witness with the status of your soul. And if you are not justified, you will not live a righteous life. And if you are justified, as James teaches us, then you will have good deeds that will follow. And they will result to praise and glory. Now, as Paul recounts here, he makes this recollection of what happened to him very early on in, in his life. He talks about the ethnarch who served under Eratus, the king. And it was, this took place in Damascus. Well, Damascus is in the region of Arabia. And so this took place during a certain uh, a time, a certain uh, decades uh, where there was a, a kingdom known as the Nabataean kingdom. And we have the record of all of this. And actually, King Eratus is actually mentioned in Josephus' Antiquities. He mentions this exact ruler, this king. And this ethnarch, whoever he was, the word ethnarch just literally means something like governor or, or, or somebody like a, like a prefect that was in charge of certain regions. He was looking for Paul. Now, to see the other side, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 gives us a parallel passage so that we understand what went down and what happened. Acts chapter 9, verse 23. I told you this goes all the way back to the early days of Paul, right after his conversion. Acts 9, 23. He says, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted to do away with him. <laughs> they wanted to erase him, eliminate Paul for his preaching. But their plot became known to Saul. He was still Saul at that time. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples, i.e. Saul's disciples, took him by night and let him down through an, open, uh, through an opening in the wall, lowering him down in a large basket. Wow. So that's what led to Paul's escape. Jews were in pursuit, and certainly the Jews were working in conjunction, in congruence with the ethnarch under Eratus in order to seize him. And why seize him? Well, it was in order to kill him, and that's why he fled. Paul fled in the face of certain death, okay, in the face of certain death. I had a brother call me one time and said, hey, man, I'm in Yemen right now. I'm thinking about open-air preaching in the market. I will be killed. And so my advice to him was, don't do that. <laughs> Live another day, brother. You are more useful alive to the church. And this brother, who was a Muslim scholar, certainly more useful alive than dead. 
But I, just his zeal, he wanted to, he was so broken over the millions of Muslims in bondage to Islam that he wanted to just start preaching right there in the market, and he certainly would have died. That was a remarkable phone call. Anyway, going on. So for Paul, let's end it by looking at this final point, and that is that we should receive not only encouragement, but also exhortation. Notice the fact that Paul goes way back in his life to recount the faithfulness of God. He goes all the way back to his conversion days when he, when he spent 14 years in Arabia. He goes all the way back to pull out an example of the, of the, 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 the divine intervention of God in his life. Do you do that? Oh, do that. Don't lose sight of that. Recount, recall, remember, recite, retell, tell of his wonderful deeds among the people. Remind yourself of the faithfulness of God that has brought you to this very hour. And don't forget that God has been working providentially in your life all along. Notice another point of encouragement for you and I. When Paul escaped the hands of the ethnarch, did God rapture him out of there? No, there was no miracle. There was a group of guys that grabbed a rope, put Paul in a basket, and lowered him down the window, down a wall. In other words, don't always wait for the miracle. God works providentially in our lives. That's how he does it. His disciples took him. And so Paul interprets this. This is such great encouragement to me because just by nature, I'm a very skeptical person about everything. But uh, especially the miraculous and, you know, stuff like that. And that's probably why God doesn't show me. I don't have a lot of faith in, you know, God would probably show me more if I had more faith. But anyway, that aside, I'm just encouraged that even through the normative means of God's providential dealings with us in this life, He is at work. Don't doubt that. God is working in your life today just like he was when he let Paul down that window. There was a flash of lightning. There wasn't a light in the sky. There was no angel. There was nothing. There was the sovereignty of God leading and guiding providentially his people to rescue Paul. And in your own life, don't doubt the providence of God. Don't doubt his providential hand in your life. He's keeping you. He knows what's up with your job. He knows what's going on with your finances. He knows what's going on in your marriage. He knows what's happening in your family. He knows what's been happening in your spiritual life, in your own soul, in your own heart. He knows your psychological condition. And don't wait for a miracle all the time. You may just have to pick up a book and read or fast or pray or cry out for help or go to the pastor's or go to someone you trust. Don't underestimate the normative means that God uses to sanctify and preserve and protect His people. Let's pray. Jesus, I my cross have taken. This hymn, Go then earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure with thy favor. Loss is gain. Father, only with the right eyes can we see pain as pleasure, loss 
is gain. Would you open up the eyes of our heart and give us faith to see, even in the, more, in, in the most mundane things of life, help us, Lord, not to underestimate your sovereign hand, but to see, Lord, that you are in the details and that you are working. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for giving us an example in Paul's life. Thank you for his ardor, his zeal, his passion, his sacrifice. And thank you for his weakness, because we too are weak. We too lack strength. We too are totally dependent upon your strength. And Lord, we're grateful that you are the kind of God, as Paul will go on to say, you are the kind of God that delights to perfect His power in weakness, our weaknesses. Thank You, Lord, that You don't beat us down, that You don't crush us down, that You don't discourage us and pummel us, that Your commandments are not burdensome to Your people. Thank You, Lord, for being a loving Father, a faithful shepherd, and a gentle, a gentle God, a comforting God, the God of all comfort and grace. We bless your name, Father. We pray that as we continue to look at this majestic book of your word, that we would continue to learn from it and grow from it, that we would be taught out of it, that our faith would grow, that our sin would decrease, and in all things, God, that we might decrease and that you may increase for the praise of the glory of your grace. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.